This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and director of communications at the ACLU of PA. In this episode, we continue the conversation about police in America with Harold Jordan, senior policy advocate for the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Harold has been a longtime advocate for civil rights in schools, including more than a decade at ACLU PA. In our conversation, Harold describes the various ways that police have a presence in schools and the negative impact they have on kids, particularly students of color with disabilities and of limited income. At the end of the discussion, Harold also offered some insights into the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on education. Harold and his team curate ACLUPA's website endzerotolerance.org, which includes a robust collection of information about police in schools. Be sure to check out that valuable resource. This conversation was recorded on June 16th. So, Harold, over the last few weeks, as there has been a constant drumbeat and protest about police treatment, one of the issues that has come up has been police in schools. Um, it's been part of the Black Lives Matter protests and the and the protests against police brutality. Um, before we get into some of the problems with police in schools, I wonder if you can just first uh, give us an explanation of the different ways in which police have presence in schools. I know it varies from district to district. Well, especially since about 1985, police have come to have a, a, a really massive and growing presence in schools in a number of forms. You have situations where school districts start their own police departments. I would guess roughly about 40 of the 500 districts in Pennsylvania have their own police departments. You have situations in which school districts contract with local and state law enforcement to provide officers in schools full time. That is what is called the school resource officer program uh, model. And that is the fastest growing and, and the most visible program, policing program in Pennsylvania school districts. And when I say visible, I mean, it is one that is most visible in the largest number of districts. So you have probably somewhere between 150 and 200 school districts out of the, the 500 districts in Pennsylvania that have that model, where the police officer works for local law enforcement or state patrol, normally assigned to do something else, is assigned to the school on a contract basis to be a police officer in that school full-time, usually for a period of at least two years, if not more than that. And so this is a just an ordinary police officer whose beat becomes a school. Mm-hmm. And then all school districts have relationships with local law enforcement, with local and area law enforcement. Even when they don't have police in schools full time, they have some kind of a relationship. And in some school districts, that results in officers being called in all the time to arrest kids, to um, interrogate kids, to restrain kids, et cetera. So there has been a sort of hefty and robust presence of police in schools that has grown over time. One of the factors in that growth has been the availability of funding from both state governments and the federal government. And that has just grown. It has taken off, especially since early 2018 after the Parkland shooting. But reality is that even at that point, Almost half of the schools, uh, public schools in this country, had a police officer at least two days a week, according to federal statistics. 
And I think it's worth noting as folks talk about defund the police or divest in police, that the state has made millions of dollars available to school districts. Uh, That's a program that dates back several years, correct? Yeah, it dates back until to uh, at least 2010, the Safe Schools Act of 2010, which was passed in 2009, established a pool of money through the Pennsylvania Department of Education that would be given to school districts where they could hire school police officers, in other words, police officers who work directly for school districts, school resource officers, those are police who work for local and state agencies but are assigned to schools or they could use the money for some other safe school purposes. However, the funding formula was weighted, at least in the initial law, so that 60% of those funds had to be for a sworn officer. That funding formula was adjusted from the 2010 law in 2018 to up that to 70%. Okay. And then in 2018, um, the state in 2018 and 2019, the state passed some additional school safety laws which provided other funding. On top of that, the federal U.S. Department of Justice COPS Office, Community Oriented Policing Services Office, provides grants to uh, local school districts and municipalities to provide officers in schools. So, those are some of the funding sources that have been on the rise, I would say, for the last decade. And Am I right? My impression is that when people talk about police in schools, for the most part, they're talking about those first two um, descriptors that you mentioned. They're talking about the school districts that have their own police force or those that have uh, an SRO, someone who's assigned from the local municipality full-time to the school. That is correct. However, that is only a partial picture. Because you have some other districts that are very aggressive and calling the police all the time around a broad range of infractions or alleged infractions. Right. So it's really all of the above. But when people, especially now with this movement to remove police from schools, they're mostly talking about the first and second model. Right. So I'd like you to answer the fundamental question. What harm is done by having police officers in schools? There's abundant harm. Uh, One is that uh, what is considered normal adolescent behavior uh, is often dealt with in a sort of criminal justice setting, and that's reflected in the high rates of arrest uh, in some districts and in some states. Pennsylvania has has had among the highest rates of of student arrest in the country for at least a decade. We've been somewhere between first and sixth in the country when you count 50 states plus the District of Columbia. So we've had relatively high rates both in districts that have full-time police officers and to a lesser extent, but a significant extent in districts that just call the police all the time. So it is the unnecessary rates of student arrests for behavior that is the same with kids in other states uh, or for alleged behavior. Then you have other forms of involvement with the justice system, such as these tickets known as summary citations, which are often given for things that are even considered lesser infractions. And by law, summary citations are issued for so-called offenses for which a kid could not be incarcerated. So it's things like disorderly conduct or characterized as harassment. Disorderly conduct is is the typical charge. And so what happens there is that even though a kid is underage, in other words, they're under 18, they're juvenile in most instances, um, it goes to adult court. And so 
interestingly enough, something that is more minor than things that would go through the juvenile justice system ends up creating a record that in some ways may be more difficult to get rid of. That's the irony of the way that it, this is established under Pennsylvania law. And then third, I think that there have been a good number of instances in Pennsylvania and elsewhere where force is used inappropriately against a young person or force is threatened. And I, and, I, and I think people don't talk about the threat of the use of force often enough because that is an essential component of policing, that you, they can threaten to use force. That has a profound impact on young people and on the school environment, the threat of the use of force. And the harm that's inflicted is inflicted on particular students, right? It especially impacts students of color and students with disabilities. That is correct. I would add to that list students of limited economic means. In other words, students who are non-affluent is a part of that. And you, you actually do see that some white students from non-affluent families, especially in the rural areas, being uh, mistreated as, in a way by police as well. But the numbers reflect the reality that overall it is African-American students to some extent, Latino students, depending on what district, and uh, students with disabilities overall are generally punished at rates that are twice that of students without disabilities. And when I say students with disabilities, I mean students who are recognized under federal law as um, deserving and needing special education services. And so the the young person in a school who's most likely to be arrested, this is true in Pennsylvania and for most of the country, is a black male student with a disability. So last weekend I was talking with my teenage daughter and her friend about trying to get the school resource officer out of their school. And they understood the problem with having police in schools but the one thing they did say is he's so nice. <laughs> um, and I saw the notebook published a piece last week about the effort to end the school police program in Philadelphia. And the head of that program, Kevin Bethel said, and this is the quote, I said to the men and women who work for me that we can have a school safety entity that doesn't drive kids into the school to prison pipeline and cause all the collateral damage to their lives and is instead a caring group that treats students with empathy and respect. And this is, seems to be a common refrain in this debate. I, when the mayor of Harrisburg was trying to get city police into the schools, he said that he wanted officers and students to build positive relationships. Why is that thinking flawed? Well, if that is what you think these school staff members are doing, then take away their power to arrest students, take away their power to detain students, take away their power to interrogate students, take away their power to handcuff students. So if you're looking for some a school staff member to build positive relations with young people, let's just fund those positions directly. It's a misuse of scarce educational resources to, to make the claim that someone who could potentially take away a, a kid's freedom is the best person to do that. So, and then, the, the other thing that we know from some of the newer research on this is that when schools implement automatically uh, tough security measures, uh, and, that, and that means physical security measures that are, that are tough and are very visible, uh, as well as policing, that it does have an impact on student climate. Um, for example, some students report, at least in some of the research, that it makes them fearful because it makes them believe that 
with all the security there, something that the school must be unsafe. And so it generates a certain level of fear. And this is some of the research that's been done on student attitudes. It generates a certain level of fear about the climate, that the climate must be unsafe because there are all these measures that are taken. So I start from the, the basic notion that whether, the common sense notion that whether a police officer should be in a school on any given day should depend on what's going on in that school. But that is not what you have right now. It is the default position in many schools and in some schools more so than others. And, and we know from the research that African-American students, Latino students, and students who are not affluent, and in, and in particular students from sort of high poverty backgrounds, are more likely to go to schools where there are tough security measures. Even if you control for the level of misconduct in that school and you control for the level of safety in the neighborhood surrounding that school, those students are more likely to see police officers and have cameras and have other kinds of sort of tough security measures and metal detectors than other students. And so one of the things that we're arguing about in this work is what should be the default position here? What should be the environment that is created when a kid walks into the school absent an emergency? I'm glad you brought that up because this is one of the arguments I've heard a few people make that the arguing against police in schools, saying that it gets students accustomed to the security state and to having police omnipresent in their lives. And basically what, from what you just said, it sounds like that bears out based on the survey data that, that students are growing up with a security state mentality. I think that that is true. Uh, I would add to that. There's some fascinating new research uh, that looks at how the attitudes of school resource officers, that is officers on loan from local and state police departments, their attitudes about school security and what it is and who it is they think they're securing. And as it turns out that in predominantly white schools, the school officers there view their job as protecting those students from the bad person who might enter the school from the outside in schools that are overwhelmingly, uh, where the students are overwhelmingly students of color, that those officers tend to look at their function as policing students. Mm. That's a pretty profound thing and it has an impact on, environment, on the environment of the school. So not everybody experiences school policing in the same way or to the same degree. You've worked on this issue for a long time. I heard you say once that when you were in school, you saw police officers in the neighborhood on your way to school, but you didn't see them in school. When I was in school, um, I went to a suburban school and where I went, if police officers were in the school, that was an event. How did we end up here? Well, let, let me um, add to what I said before. Okay. <laughs> uh, I saw police officers on the corner near schools at the beginning of school day, at the end of school day, and when there was, there'd have to be a pretty serious physical altercation in the school for the school to police to be, not your ordinary scuffle. There would have to be some kind of an injury for the school officer to be there. The only other time that I saw police officers was during the period when the schools were, were integrating. And there were, I grew up in the South, graduated from high school in 1972, but I did see officers there when there were battles around school integration and school desegregation. There were officers surrounding a school. So that is that should be added too. And that is part of the history of school policing. 
that mm -hmm. one of the strains of school policing is that police were sent in when schools were being integrated. Um, you know, what you see in the historical record and, and in the documentaries is police protecting children and Little Rock and things of that sort. They tended to be there for a different purpose, that is to you know, protect the white students, to make the white community feel comfortable and to make sure that there was a separation between the students of different race. And so, you know, that was the only other context in which I saw police in schools. Mm -hmm. Now, having police in schools, I think, is in part uh, connected with larger sort of criminal justice trends, uh, the notion that uh, there is this super predator, uh, it, the police started being added to school more when you had the crime bills back in the 90s. And then, um, but from the, about the mid 90s on is when you saw the period of escalation of police role in schools. Some of that was influenced by the availability of federal funding. Uh, it, it used to be that the federal government gave actually quite a lot of money to schools during that period of time when we had these larger crime bills. Um, that they gave a lot more money to schools to hire police officers during that period of time, and then the funding fell off eventually. The interesting thing about um, the history of policing in schools is that the budgets for police in schools and the number of police schools rose as juvenile crime declined, started to decline. In other words, crime committed by young people and crime where young people are the victims of, of crime those started to decline at a point at which police off more police officers were added to schools so that there was there was only a thin relationship between those sort of level of of danger in a school and decisions about adding police a little less than a decade ago the u.s justice department funded a study um, where they asked the heads of police departments to provide services to schools and principals of schools what led to the start of school policing programs. And it was very interesting that for exactly 4% of each of those groups, 4% of the principals, 4% of the heads of police departments providing policing services to schools stated that those programs were started because of the uptick in misconduct in schools. 30% would say because of the availability, in roughly 30%, the availability of funds. And then another 30% or so would say something like because of public perceptions about school safety. But right. exactly 4% of the heads of those police departments and 4% of the principals in those schools said that it was because of the actual level of serious misconduct in schools. Right. Uh, which obviously, you know, speaks for itself, uh, suggesting that the, the schools didn't necessarily even think this was necessary, most of them. So the political culture now seems to be shifting amidst the recent Black Lives Matter protests and the pushback on police practices. Uh, the Minneapolis School District has ended its agreement with the city police department. The school board in Denver, Colorado, has the votes to end their program. The school superintendent in Portland, Oregon, has committed to ending their policing program. I know that ending programs in which police are stationed at schools full time is one of our goals, but just from the conversation we've had now, it's clear that the, you know, the police schools relationship is more complicated than that. So I wonder if you can tell us some of the goals you're hoping to achieve in ACLUPA's work on this issue. 
Well, first and foremost, we want to eliminate some of the concrete harms. Uh, and that means if you need to change the structures that lead to those harms, fine. If you need to do it in some way, let's do it in some other way. We want to reduce unnecessary student arrest. We want to reduce system involvement and kids getting records for minor things, such as summary citations. We want to reduce instances in which there are physical altercations between school security, both police and non-police security, and, uh, and students, uh, those kind of harmful interactions. We want to push to for, for schools to adopt alternatives to justice system involvement for young people in schools who are alleged to have co committed certain infractions. Um, and we also, where possible, we want to shift funds that school districts put into policing programs into other educational services that are more appropriate for working with young people. And so what that means is that in, in some communities, we say, yes, let's not fund a police department. Let's not fund a school resource officer arrangement. Let's place that funding elsewhere. Can you just talk a little bit about some of what those programs would be? I know that you, um, you were co-author on a report that talked about schools where they have police officers, but they lack, for example, counselors. This is a national problem. You have uh, school districts with cops and either no counselor, no social worker, no school nurse, or no school psychologist. Now, of those four groups, I would say that school psychologists play the most important role in, in at least potentially in terms of working with young people in need of support. And they are an undervalued uh, resource in schools. Uh, but you certainly have those in Pennsylvania and elsewhere. Some states have more schools than that or a higher percentage of their schools have cops and no counselors. Um, but we still have that problem in Pennsylvania. And, and that is a profound statement about uh, how schools regard young people, you know, where they put their resources and what kind of support services there are for young people. These tend to be the positions that are most sort of at risk when school districts cut their budgets. Now, if you think about the situation that we're in now with the pandemic and the massive uh, disruptions to school, but also to, to the budgets of federal and state governments, uh, school districts are really uh, at risk and financially. And so especially in this context and with the need for supporting students whose lives have been disrupted, I think that gives us an even stronger argument to make for uh, transfer, for divesting from reliance, over-reliance on policing and investing in uh, student support staff that can work with students. We also know that there's a safety component to this as well. There is a certain body, as a growing body of research on averted school shootings that looks at how a school shooting was prevented. And what most of it shows is that school shootings are prevented not so much by having security devices in schools, by having officers in school, but actually schools are more likely to be able to, to, to be in a position to prevent a school shooting when there are trusting relationships between young people and the adults in those schools, where they have those kinds of relationships and young people can come forward to talk about what it is and to reveal what they have learned about the potential threat of another student. And so that's another reason for having school staff that really work with students 
uh, and in ways that where students don't view them as potentially threatening. I'm glad you brought that up because that often is a counter to the position that we take as an organization that you need the officers there for that kind of traumatic uh, event. Uh, but clearly, based on what you just presented, um, these officers are not necessarily the yeah. best preventive measure for that kind of event. Well, school shootings are not like bank robberies. Right. <laughs> bank robbers, in, in many regards, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not being funny about this, sure. but a bank robber expects to survive that encounter so they can use the money. With these school shootings, the mass school shootings, the folks that carry them out for the most part do not expect to survive that encounter. And indeed, they're puzzled when they do, those that do, the minorities that do. Um, and so, you know, it's the kind of thing where someone, for whatever reason, is committed to carrying out a certain heinous act, but they're not expecting to survive the encounter. There have been instances in which uh, the shooters have run toward officers who've come into schools. What we found is that, generally speaking, with rare exception, uh, having an officer there doesn't prevent the act from happening. So if someone listening to this wants to end the police program in their school or at least wants greater limitations on it, what's your advice? Where, where should they start? Well, I certainly think the number one thing that you should look at is what schools spend their money on and argue that schools should be spending scarce resources in other ways on other kinds of support services for students, especially given the, just the trauma that young people have gone through with the disruption of their lives by both racial injustice and the pandemic. This is a time when school districts should be spending their money in a different way and should prioritize doing that. And so we need to get involved as the public in, in those discussions about school budgets and school resources, and even what kinds of grants to apply for and who should be in schools. That is a, a very uh, critical part of, of, of the public discussion. That is something that the public should be involved in. I think there is a need to push harder for school districts to be more transparent about the circumstances that lead to arrest of students. We, we having a, a terrible time in Pittsburgh right now getting the district to release information about student arrests. Pittsburgh has had very high student arrests relative to the rest of the state and most of the big cities in this country. But we have trouble getting some of the concrete data uh, about what is happening at the school level and the reasons for that out of the school district. So there's a need to demand transparency as a first step. There are many things that can be done, but some of these are, these are some of the things that, that, that I think you can start with with budgets, with transparency, with reviewing the circumstances under which kids are arrested and seeing, well, could that have been handled a different way? What we find is that it would, when schools over rely on police, that incidents that are not normally considered criminal tend to escalate into something and lead to arrest. So you have situations where uh, a kid is committed an infraction by not being in class when they're supposed to be in class or by having a cell phone or something of that nature. We have found that when the adult who's intervening in those situations is a police officer, it tends to escalate and it tends to get handled in a way that, that leads to sort of harsh consequences. 
And I also want to promote uh, your website that you and your team of interns and volunteers uh, maintain, nzerotolerance.org, which I know you, you try to keep up with all the latest research and resources available, and folks can check out that site as well. Yeah, it's chock full of resources for all audiences, for students, for parents. For We place the great emphasis on having a lot of resources there for people who actually run schools and make decisions about schools. So since you're here, I want to ask you about the pandemic as well. You've mentioned it a couple of times. When schools had to close their buildings in March, that exposed the many inequities in education in Pennsylvania and around the country. Uh, our executive director, Reggie Shuford, sent a letter to Governor Wolf and Secretary Rivera at the State Department of Education about privacy concerns and, and asking for guidance for school districts on remote learning. From your perspective as an advocate, what were some of the problems in education that the pandemic exposed? Well, privacy is certainly one of them. When I talk about privacy, let me be very clear that you had a sudden, just dramatic, without any kind of announcement, shift to an attempt at online learning. Now, what that meant is for those folks that had the resources that already were able to incorporate some online component in, in, into instruction, which tended to be folks who went to more affluent schools, uh, they were ready to go. And it was a bump in the road. It took many of them a week to two weeks, but instruction did not stop for like four weeks and six weeks and then sort of ease back in and then schools close after that. So, you know, we, we had to deal with uh, the the good old-fashioned uh, digital divide, that some fun folks had the resources and other people did not. Then there were some technology issues that had to do with appropriate technology for students with particular disabilities, which districts in general were not equipped to, to handle. So there were a number of issues like that, but there's a core privacy issue. You had school districts that that literally jumped onto whatever platform they can get, and many of them, both from Google and from Zoom, offered more or less free services immediately. And they were bigger corporations that were ready to go. And we found that many districts just hopped onto those without looking at the, considering the privacy issues. When I say privacy issues, I mean what it is that, what kind of information that those uh, corporations collect from students and about students, what happens to those? Do students understand how those companies might use that and who they share that with when a kid logs on. Uh, these are things that school districts were not prepared to deal with. And even this is even a problem with some of the paid platforms. Um, and so what we're saying to the governor and secretary of education is that no corporation should take advantage of the pandemic to promote its business for non-educational purposes you know, to build its business. And we're especially concerned that those companies may share information with law enforcement, with other agencies that have other uses, or that those young people and their families that use those platforms out of necessity will then just be bombarded with the most sophisticated type of advertising. And so those are some of the kinds of issues that we had to deal with. But I would say that for the majority of Pennsylvania students, the ending of the school year was not only anticlimactic, it was <laughs> borderline disastrous. Some folks did have, a, some kids did have positive experiences with online learning, but those are ones that went to schools that had more resources to begin with, generally speaking. 
students with disabilities really struggled. And many of your average student tended to struggle. You and I were on a call earlier today where you were talking about just anticipating what's going to come in August and September when schools start back up. I mean, the pandemic's not over. Uh, and schools are figuring out how they're going to do instruction and, and, you know, addressing some of these inequities are going to have to be part of the calculation. Yeah. Uh, most schools have yet to figure this out. I think yeah. as many schools as possible plan to try to open in some form or another, but there is a debate. If you open and you can't maintain social distancing at schools, which is the case for the majority of schools, Keep in mind, the context for this is the consolidation of student populations, the closing of some schools. And so you don't have the kind of situation that you used to have in a city like Philadelphia, where you had schools with a lot of empty classrooms and empty spaces, because many of them have been closed. So you you have, generally speaking, in, in school districts, no matter whether they're wealthy districts or poor districts, you have a situation where a lot of kids are in a compact space. Now, who do you bring back? Uh, how do you manage a situation like that? Is the fair thing to do to get the kids who are most needy of educational services in those schools? But then does that mean that they're most at risk for getting COVID-19? And so these are some complicated issues. And then the other thing to consider is that, that kids are, their lives are disrupted. And, um, and uh, it, it, many of them are not going to come back in the, in the best frame of mind when they start the school. They'll be happy to see their classmates, but they're not coming back in the best frame of mind. It's been a disruptive time, not only for kids, but their families. People mm-hmm. lost their jobs. Yeah. You know, so many of them are in families where people are struggling to survive. All of this comes into the school environment. Um, You know, this has also been a spring and summer where many of the core racial justices that are reflected in how policing is done in America are out there for all to see, both people who are affected by it, people who have loved ones are affected by it. But the general public has seen some things that, that, people often don't see that's a, that is a side of, of, of policing in America. And all of this stuff gets internalized by the young people who walk into that door in September. And so the last person they should see when they walk into a door is a police officer, whether it's a, a nice police officer or a friendly welcoming police officer or one who's more stern and more distant. That is the last person that they need to be seeing in schools. On that note, thanks, Harold. I really appreciate your insights. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. That's Harold Jordan, Senior Policy Advocate for the ACLU of PA. For more information, check out endzerotolerance.org. Also on June 26th, ACLU PA community advocate Gada Makushi had a piece published in the Philadelphia Inquirer on why police should not be in schools. We have included a link to that piece in the show notes. That brings episode 45 to a close. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, the host, director, and writer for this podcast. Until next time, be healthy and be free. (laughs) 